Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Uh, The movie Amadeus is the story of a composer that we probably would never have heard of were it not for the movie. His name was Antonio Salieri, and he developed an all-consuming jealousy of a composer that you have heard of, Mozart. And early in the movie, Salieri, there's, there's a scene where he, as a boy, makes a prayer to God. I want to just read this to you. He said, it was the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. And over the course of the movie, we see that that prayer gets answered in Mozart's life, not in Salieri's life. And so Salieri becomes insanely jealous, literally insanely jealous, and just begins to plot the destruction of Mozart. Ends up backfiring on him and ends up destroying himself. And that storyline is remarkably like the, the relationship between King Saul and David. We're going to look at that this morning. We're we're going to see jealousy begin to surface in the life of Saul. Jealousy feels like a really natural thing because it is, it's so common. It's just kind of, you know, we, we experience it uh, with a friend, with, with a family member. It just kind of seems normal, but it's incredibly destructive. Proverbs 14 says, envy makes the bones rot. So envy destroys relationships between people, but before it does that, it eats us from the inside. It seems very natural because it is so common, but so is tooth decay. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, tooth decay is very common, but if we do not intervene in some way, it's going to turn into a very serious problem. And so jealousy is actually a symptom of a much deeper problem. Maybe you've experienced it. Maybe you've been talking with a friend, a neighbor, and they are sharing something positive that's going on in their life. And you get this this little clutch in your heart, thinking, you know, I I deserve that more. You don't really deserve that. I deserve that more than you do. When you have a hard time rejoicing, celebrating a success with somebody else and wish that it were yours instead, then you've experienced jealousy, and it's starting to rot you on the inside. Today, we're going to look at what that deeper issue is underneath the symptom of jealousy, and we're going to find the antidote for it. If you would turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're continuing in the series called Beloved because that is what the name David, we're really studying the life of David, but we're getting a lot of the life of Saul as well. Last week, 
uh, Steve walked us through the famous scene of David versus Goliath and talked about the fact that defining moments in our lives define our faith. And Steve also made a crack about armor that uh, his armor wouldn't fit me very well. I think that's really low to like do that when I'm not here to defend myself. So just watch, watch yourself, Steve, when you're, when you're out next time. But it's not going to be today. All right, so today what we're going to see is the rise of David strongly contrasted with the decline of Saul, and we're going to learn the antidote to jealousy in that process. The first five verses of chapter 18 paints this picture of the rise and the rise of David. Verse 1, as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So David is gaining favor with everybody. I mean, it's just growing and growing. First, the first person mentioned here is Jonathan. Jonathan, the son of King Saul. It says, uh, it tells us twice that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Now, this is kind of surprising when we think about the fact that Jonathan is the heir apparent to the throne. I mean, that's the way kingship worked in those days. There's no elections. And so if you're the king and Saul is the king, then his son is in line to be the next king. And yet what we see here is Jonathan clearly yielding himself to David's leadership. I have to wonder if Jonathan didn't hear about the anointing of David to be the next king. Because what he's doing here is very symbolic. It's very significant. In verse 4, he stripped himself of the robe that was on him. So that robe would have signified that he's the prince. He's the one next in line for the throne. He also gave him his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt. All of this is a symbolic way of saying, I'm yielding to your leadership. And the verse before that, verse 3, says that Jonathan made a covenant with David. Whenever we see that word covenant in the, the Hebrew scriptures, it's talking often about a political relationship. So God enters into covenant with us. Nations would enter into covenant with one another. And so Jonathan entering into a covenant with David is saying, I want to be at peace with you. He's recognizing David's authority and really David's kingship. This is surprising because we might expect, if Jonathan is the next in line to be king, we might expect some jealousy. We, we might expect um, that he is feeling threatened, but instead we get this incredible humility, which is a very different response than we're going to see from his father. So let's talk about Saul for a minute. Initially here at the beginning, for the moment, Saul is showing favor to David. So in verse 2, 
Saul took David that day, would not let him return to his father's house. Saul watched this victory over Goliath. He said, I want you close to me. I want you right here beside me. And so he's honoring him. And then in verse 5, David went out, was successful wherever Saul sent him. So Saul set him over the men of war. He's elevating his position. So David has favor for the moment in Saul's sight. And then at the end of verse 5, this was good in the sight of all the people and in the sight of Saul's servants. So everybody loves David. Everyone's celebrating David's success. And up to this point, Saul is too, but that is about to change. Verse 6. As they were coming home, as the army was coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Listen to what they sing. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So this, this scene of these women coming out and celebrating, this is typical after a battle. The men would go out, fight the battle. If they're victorious, then they're coming back, and all of their wives, all of their families, the women are coming out, and they're dancing, they're singing, they're celebrating. And they should be celebrating. This was a huge rout. I mean, the, the, the Hebrew army took out the Philistines as a result of David stepping in and becoming the champion against Goliath. And notice in their song that they celebrate Saul first. So they're not forgetting about Saul. They say Saul has struck down his thousands. The problem for Saul is that they celebrate David more. David has struck down his ten thousands. And Saul's dark side begins to surface. Verse 8 tells us that he was very angry. He, he's feeling threatened. I mean, no doubt he's remembering the words of Samuel who told him, the kingdom has been torn away from you and given to someone who is better than you. So those words are ringing in Saul's ears. And he's keeping his eye out now for who is going to threaten to displace him. He's keeping an eye on his turf. And so he becomes suspicious of David in verse 9. He eyed, Saul eyed David from that day on. Why? Because he's jealous in verse 8. They've ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they've only ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So hold that thought on jealousy. We will come back to it. Let's read on. Verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Now you have to think how, this is just a strange Thing. I mean, David just stood up to Goliath and, and saved the whole Israeli army from humiliation. 
and now Saul is trying to throw his spear and take him out. I mean, we've seen this harmful spirit that came on Saul before. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and it was the whole reason that David was brought into his service, because David would come play the, the lyre, play the harp in soothing music. It would calm Saul's spirit. So now Saul is... He's driven to get, Dave, get rid of David because he's a threat to him. So he tries to take him out with a spear, but apparently has bad aim. So he, he missed. That didn't work. And so he's going to try something else. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed David from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And David went out and came in before the people. So Saul's thinking, if I can't succeed in killing him, I'm going to put him in front of this battle, and I'm, hopefully he's going to get killed there. But verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful all of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him. So things keep getting worse and worse for Saul. They keep getting better and better for David. Okay, let's diagnose Saul's problem. Okay, it's jealousy, but it's something deeper than jealousy. Okay, jealousy is just the symptom. So if you get a toothache... You might take Tylenol for that, and that might get you through for a while, but there's a deeper problem there that a pill can't fix. You gotta get that cavity out of there. You might even have to have the tooth taken out. With jealousy, there's a deeper issue there. It's, it's important to know that there's something more going on. If you feel jealous of somebody, something more going on, and there's a deep issue. Saul, see, Saul, here's Saul's problem. He's too concerned about what other people think about him. He's much more concerned about what other people think about him than what God thinks about him. He is insecure in his identity before the Lord. We, we see this pattern in earlier scenes from, from Saul's life. In, in one scene, they're getting ready to go to battle uh, and Samuel, the prophet, tells Saul to wait for Samuel to come, and he's going to offer a sacrifice right before the battle and, just, and call on the Lord to save the army. So Saul waits with his army, and they wait for seven days, which is actually the amount of time that Samuel told him that it was going to be. But Saul starts getting itchy and antsy, and people start leaving. His army starts leaving, and so he steps up to offer the sacrifice something that a king was not in a place to do. And so Samuel shows up right after he offers the sacrifice and he confronts Saul. And we'll put this on the screen. He says, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And it's in that disobedience that Samuel says, you've, you've now lost the kingdom. You, you, because you are not obedient to the Lord, because you didn't trust me and trust the Lord, 
you will not be able to continue. Two chapters later, um, Saul said to Samuel, similar disobedience, he said, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your word. So he acknowledges that he was wrong, and this is the reason, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And then Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Notice it's not even the Lord my God anymore. He's so separated. But look at what he's asking Samuel to do. Honor me now before the elders of my people. Even though he's been disobedient, instead of repenting, instead of coming to the Lord and acknowledging that he was wrong, he's like, Samuel, just make me look good. Help me to look good in front of everybody. He's far more concerned about the approval of people than he is about obeying God. Timothy Keller, Tim Keller wrote uh, this amazing little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I highly recommend it. A friend gave me this a number of years ago, and I've just read it over and over and over again. He says in here, the normal human ego searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness and a sense of purpose, and builds itself on that. And of course, As we are often reminded, if you try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it is going to be too small. It's going to rattle around in there. Augustine said, there's a space in every person's heart that only God can fill. And when we try to fill that space with the approval of people around us, it's always going to fail. That's what Saul was was trying to do. If Saul were mature and secure in his identity before the Lord, knowing that he is loved, that he is called, that he has a purpose in life, if he was secure in that, he could see people celebrating David, even celebrating David more than him, and he could celebrate right along. I mean, there was reason to celebrate. I mean, this was a huge victory. I mean, the whole army was paralyzed for 40 days, and this little boy David steps up and saves them from from servitude to the Philistines and saves them from further humiliation. I mean, there's a lot to celebrate here, but Saul can't bring himself to do it. It's not like they even forgot to celebrate Saul. They're celebrating him first, but his ego just is so fragile and insecure. He is trying to fill up that hole And so he gives way to this darker side of him. Instead of seeking spiritual input, and that leads to his decline, which leads to his demise. I had a significant person early in my life tell me to look out for number one. And what they meant by that was, I'm number one, and I'm supposed to be looking out for myself because nobody else is going to do that. I mean, that's pretty common. That's a pretty common attitude in our world. We, we want to be recognized. We want to get what we feel like we deserve, and we're resentful when we, we don't get it and someone else seems to. And Saul's life shows us what that kind of attitude, looking out for number one, generates. It generates anger. In verse 4, Saul was very angry. 
The word, the word anger in the Hebrew has to do with like a fire being lit. We feel that when we're angry and resentful towards others, don't we? It feels like something's burning in, inside of us. In Saul, we also see jealousy and suspicion. In verse 9, Saul eyed David from that day on. We see fear. In verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Verse 15, when Saul saw that David had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. All these things are eating him from the inside, and it leads him to try to cause physical harm. I mean, he's trying to take David out. So jealousy may seem natural, in the world's eyes, because it's pretty common, but it ends in destruction of relationships with other people and it ends in destruction of ourselves. It rots our, our bones. There's good news, though, and that is that that phrase, look out for number one, can be redeemed. We can still use that phrase, look out for number one, if number one is who? God. I mean, if we're looking out for for God first, and David modeled that. Um, listen again to something that Steve read last week. If you go back to chapter 17, verse 45, David embodies this so well. David confronting Goliath. David said to the Philistine, verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." I mean, David's not looking for glory for himself. He's pointing people to the Lord. And what we see here is that when, when we live to make much of God, it matters little what others think of us. When, when we are living to make God look good, then we're not so concerned about how we look in front of others. Another way to say it is that David just wasn't concerned about what other people thought or making himself look good. He just wanted to make God look good. David is just serving steadily, faithfully, without drama, and that fueled David's success. We, we see that word success three times in these verses that we read. I'll point them out to you again. Verse 5, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Verse 15, when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. That word success in the Hebrew has to do with knowing what to do. It's knowing the right thing to do and then doing it. That's what leads to success. And see, when we are, when we are consumed with jealousy or when we're consumed with trying to one-up other people and look better in other people's eyes, then we don't have the brain space to know what is the right thing to do. When we clear out all of that mess, when we can put, set aside what other people think about us and focus on what God thinks of us, it frees up our brain space to say, God, what is the right thing to do? 
and now I trust you to give me the strength to do it. That's what David did over and over and over again. That's what made him a success in God's eyes and it happens, so happens in the eyes of other people. So God gave David favor. Our, our passage this morning is bookended with that. It starts with David having favor with Jonathan. It ends with him having favor with everybody. Verse 16, but uh, all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. He's leading them in their army. He's leading them in victory, and they're all happy about that. When we live to make much of God, it, it really doesn't matter what other people think of us. And in that kind of mindset, that kind of attitude, jealousy just melts away. So today, if you detect a heart of jealousy in yourself, if it resonated with you when I talked about you know, getting that little clutch in your heart when you hear somebody else talking about their success, if you're looking at somebody's social media feed and you're just jealous of what they have and thinking that you deserve it more than they do, if that's, if that's the case for you, then I want to invite you to join me in asking God to change your heart from trying to get honor, recognition, accolades for yourself and make your heart one that puts God first and say, God, I want to be about making you look good. That's what frees us up from self and from ego. See, see the antidote to jealousy and to insecurity is not having a better self-esteem. Okay, that's, that's the solution that our culture offers to us. We should just think better of ourselves. That's not the solution because that's, why, why is that not the solution? It's still focused on self. We need, to, we, we need the, the solution, the antidote to jealousy and to insecurity is God esteem. It's living our lives so that God looks good and then we just, we don't care what other people think about us. C.S. Lewis has a, a great quote. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's, it's Tim Keller's, the title of his book, The, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's when, when you just set aside ego. You're not trying to satisfy your ego. You're not trying to build your ego up. You're just setting that aside, and you're saying, the space in my heart, God, I want to be filled by you. I want you to be number one. It's praying, it's saying what John the Baptist said when his position was threatened. Maybe some of you remember this scene. When John the Baptist's disciples came to him, followers came to him, and they said, Master, all, all of these people are going over to Jesus, this new guy. See, John the Baptist has been like center stage for a while now. He's been attracting a lot of crowds. They've been coming down to the Jordan River to hear him preach, to be baptized. We did baptism here this morning. He's been the center stage for all of that for a while. And then Jesus shows up. And some of John's followers start leaving him and going to follow Jesus. And if John had been like Saul... He would have started to get jealous, and he would, have been, he would have started trying to protect his turf, but he didn't. He said this to his followers. He said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. See, John recognizes his role. He's he's second fiddle. He's the best man at the wedding. If you've ever been best man or you've ever been to a wedding, you you should just know. If you're going to be the best man at a wedding, just know. You should not upstage the groom, okay? You shouldn't dress better. You shouldn't talk smarter. You shouldn't, you know, you, you just shouldn't upstage. It's just like at a wedding, no one should upstage the bride, right? But in this case, John is saying no one upstages Jesus. And so when the groom gets here, I'm happy for him to take center stage. I am happy for him to take people's attention away from me. It's okay for me to fade into the background. He must become greater, and I must become less. And so Jesus, the the ultimate bridegroom, has come to marry us. He has come to call us because he loves us. He's come to invite us. One day we, as the collective church, all through history, will be the bride of Christ, and he will finish that marriage ceremony, and we will be married to him for eternity. That is where our identity should come from. Not what other people around us think, but the fact that Christ loved us enough to come and to give his very life in our place. That's how much he loved you. That's where your identity and your value comes from, not from what other people think of you. When we live to make much of God, it matters little what other people think of us. So, have you ever said what John said? I want Jesus to become greater in my life so that I become less. Have you ever asked Jesus to be number one in your life, to displace you as number one? Jesus, I want you to come. You're number one now, and I'm going to follow you wherever you lead. If, if you've never done that, make today your day to do that. Maybe it's your first time to do that. Jesus, I want you to be number one in my life. Maybe you've done that at some point in your past, and maybe you've drifted from that. Maybe your ego, maybe you started to feed your ego again and tried to get it bigger to fill that empty space. Maybe you need to say it again to him today. Jesus, I want you in first place in my life. You must increase. Please increase and let me decrease. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for loving us so much that you would come that you would call us, that you would invite us to be your very bride, and that you would commit to us for an eternity with you. Lord, may our identity be settled and secure in that love that you have for us. May we not be like Saul, where we're looking around and trying to one-up others and becoming insecure and fearful of losing our, our position when others outshine us. May we rejoice when people outshine us doing the work of, of doing your work, fulfilling your purpose in their life. May we rejoice in that with them because it's not about us. It's really about you. Lord, help us to die to self so that you may truly become greater in our lives and we may become less. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.